So today we're going to look at Acts 17 verses 22 through 34. And this is going to be the verses following the pre-sermon that you all listened to that I put out last week. And those verses are as follows. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Agrippagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. And if you will pray with me. Now, Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations deep within all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. So we're going to join Paul in chapter 17 of Acts. And he's actually into his second missionary journey. He had three missionary journeys that he went on. He's probably maybe a third to a quarter, maybe closer between a quarter and a half way through the second missionary journey. Which went from 49, it was 49 to 51 AD. So it was a two-year journey. He had in a short time... Started out at the end of chapter 16, he was in Philippi. He went from Philippi as we were starting in between 16 and 17. He went from Amphipolis and Apollonia to Thessalonica to Berea and then finally into Athens. So, as we see, he starts out in Philippi. And then he had just went. So between 16 and 17, we don't actually see what he did in there. It just told us that he went through Amphipolis and Apollonia. So between Philippi and Amphipolis is about 30 miles. And then between Amphipolis and Apollonia, there's another 30 miles. And then, 
from Apollonia into Thessalonica is 40 miles. So we have 100 miles that he's walked so far, and we literally have one line in chapter 17. So I say that when we get, we get to the point where we need to study our Bibles, if you read through that, you're going to take two seconds to read that sentence. When in fact, it was 100 miles of Paul walking, that there was ministry that he was doing, there was people he was witnessing to in that time. But we're not told about that. Now Thessalonica, early in chapter 17, Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia. It had a population of about 200,000 people. It was a major port city on the Mediterranean, and it was a major commercial center. Now in verse 4, we're told some of them were persuaded, talking of the people that Paul was preaching to in Thessalonica, and they joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So he had some converts in Thessalonica. He was in Thessalonica. He was preaching the word of God. He was preaching Christ. And there was some converts that I would assume went from being Jewish into being Christian. The Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace. That's key. The Jews did not come after Paul for his preaching alone. They went and found some wicked men from the marketplace. They formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, who apparently at that point was a, a Christian, they were seeking to bring them, being the people that were preaching Christ, out to the people. So this is another example where we see that the gospel of Christ is being preached and opposition is immediately coming in. Paul come in, he preached, there were some converts, the opposition comes in, to the point that they're going house to house trying to find Paul and finding these these browsers that are trying to, to preach something outside of their own faith. As we see in verse 10, the, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Now, we've heard about the Bereans before. The Bereans were the ones that it is said in Scripture that they... Were the, would examine the scriptures daily. So they were always in their scriptures and they knew what was, what was happening as far as scriptural life. Now, when Paul was sent from Thessalonica to Berea, that is another 50 miles southwest of Thessalonica. So now Paul has walked 150 miles and we're down... 10 verses into chapter 16 or 17. Now, Berea was an important town. It wasn't on a main route, but it was on the route to Athens along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Paul again goes into Berea and begins witnessing, and many of them believed. They knew their scriptures. They would go and study. They wouldn't stand up and go, oh, that was a great message, thank you, and then split. They would take their message that was delivered to them and they would take it home and look at through the scriptures to see if what this person was telling them was actually true. So after witnessing in Berea, many of them believed along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But what happens when 
the gospel of Christ is preached, opposition comes. And in Berea, it came from the Jews of Thessalonica when they found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also. They came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. It's in verse 12 and four, through 14. So now Paul is sent out of Thessalonica by, this, by the Jews and the mob of wicked men. He goes into Berea. He's preaching. There's converts there. The opposition comes again. And it sounds to me the way it looks in Scripture as if this was not a mob to be taken lightly. If he's been run out of a couple of towns, they weren't just there to say, hey, you know, excuse me, sir, but I think that there might be some, some exaggerations and maybe some falsehoods going on here. It looked like there was going to be some trouble that they needed to get Paul out of there for his physical well-being. And it appears from Scripture that the aggression was directed at Paul because it says that Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea. So at this point, we don't know if Paul just went down to the Mediterranean coast and walked into Athens, or if he went into a port and got on a boat and went out in the Mediterranean and kind of hooked around to Athens. If he walked by foot, if he walked by foot, the distance to Athens from Berea was 222 miles. So, like I said, we're quarter, between a quarter and halfway, approximately, of his two-year-long second missionary journey from Philippi to Athens. From Philippi to Athens is 372 miles that he walked. For comparison... If we walked in a straight line from here to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, that would be 379 miles. Just a few miles short, seven miles short. Cincinnati, Ohio, 343 miles from here. Toronto, Canada is 341 miles from here. And the one that hits it spot on, if we could walk in a straight line from here to there, 372 miles to Minneapolis, Minnesota. So... Not only is he, he's walking these great distances, 372 miles is a long way, but he's also preaching the gospel of Christ. He's preaching the word of God. He's getting opposition. People are running him out of town. So this is an exciting life that, that Paul's living. But then he comes into Athens. And Athens is a much safer place. They're open to new ideas. And in Athens, he encounters four people groups. He encounters the Jews, the Gentiles, the Epicureans, and the Stoics. And this is where that pre-sermon that I had you listen to fit in. Because it was going to introduce you to each one of these groups and a small portion of what they believe, as well as what Athens would look like in that time. So Paul preaches this new gospel to the people in Athens. And some listened, some were indifferent to it, some questioned it, some just blatantly denied it. Paul took his new ideas before the Areopagus, and as I said earlier, it's not a criminal trial, but it was rather like a presentation or a debate. 
And he had to do this to introduce Athens to Christ, Jesus. As verse 21 would say, All the Athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So this would be normal for them, for somebody to come into town with a new philosophy or a new look at a, a religion and go before this Areopagus, who were the civil and religious authorities of that day, and present that to them. And many of the people that were listening when Paul started his defense, they had some idea of the supernatural. So the majority of them were not atheists. You know, as the, the pre-sermon said, the, the Greek god statues were literally all around Athens. So they weren't at any point they they knew that there was God or they felt that there were gods verse 23 as we had began he Paul had or actually Luke wrote while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God so this is Luke writing what Paul said Paul is going to begin his introduction to Jesus Christ in amongst a city full of statues of Greek gods. Therefore, he said, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now we have to note in here that the word ignorance or ignorant has taken on a new meaning today than what it would have meant in the Greek. Today it kind of gives reference to somebody being stupid or of a lesser intelligence. And the Greek word was agnoe, and it, when it's used, it means to not know, to ignore, to be unacquainted with. So it wasn't a mental handicap that he was talking about when he said you worship them in ignorance. It's more like me and brain surgery. I'm probably smart enough to do brain surgery. I could probably do it, but I'm completely ignorant of it. So... I'm not even going to try it. And that's what he was telling these people in Athens is that this God that you do not know, that you're just ignorant of it, you do not know him, and I will introduce you to him. So he makes note of this altar that they had set up for a God that they didn't even know. And Paul told them, I'm going to tell you who this God is. This God that you're ignorant of, this God you're unknowing of, this God that you're unacquainted with, I'm going to tell you about him now. But, you know, we look at that and go, well, that was Athens in 50 AD. But how many worldwide find themselves in the same predicament? They don't read, don't study, don't pray until it's absolutely needed. And then you have to wonder, do they even know who they're praying to? All of our prayers are centered on who we think God is. Praying to a God we think we know, but do we? Our goal as Christians is to be Christ-like. But the question is, how can we ever be Christ-like if we don't truly know who Christ is? We have Bibles in literally every language Tyndale lost his life for translating the Bible into English. The Bible that I have 
that you have. These Bibles through history are saturated and dripping with the blood of Christ and, with, and the blood of the martyrs. Amen. The Papists fought to keep the Bible in Latin, telling people what Scripture said. Many fought and died to bring the Bible to native languages. Then what happened? Then what happened? After all this spilled blood and all this time and all these people dying? After a couple centuries, scripture reading and studying has become a thing of the past. Long gone are the beat up, torn up Bibles of the past that I was very blessed to see a few of this last week. Literally falling apart. And when you see a Bible that's falling apart, you'll see a person that's not. But these Bibles have been replaced with cell phone apps, if anything. We may walk in and see scripture that is projected up on the wall. Or there may be a giant screen that the congregation sits Bibleists in the pews with their gaze affixed on. And the pastors will tell the congregation what the Bible says. And then the congregation will go about their business never looking back. And the way it's going, and the way that, that people are looking at Scripture, we might as well go back to the Bibles only being written in Latin. Paul's sermon could very well be re-preached on every street corner, every rooftop, and almost every church in the world. And we need to get back to knowing the biblical God. If you don't truly know God, you're no different than those in Athens. Pray and walk away. No idea if the prayer is biblical, but it is what I want. In a story semi-taken from real life and then added to, as this would have been the outcome, but it was not, and to protect the innocent and the guilty, I shall not name names. But a lady prays. She prays to God because her husband's bad. She asks the Lord, I, I want a godly husband. My husband's not godly. I, I, I cherish and so desperately want a godly husband. Lord, please give me a godly husband. Not too long after that prayer happens, a man that she works with begins to show interest in her. They start talking. They start building a relationship. She then, she then, she then kisses the man at work. Then, and luckily in real life, the story would end there as she got some serious and very godly advice had it went any farther this is how it would have ended she would decide to leave her husband because she sees this other man that she met at work as being more godly they get intimate and then she says God has answered my prayers God has brought me the husband that I wanted she has brought me the more the more biblical husband the more godly husband that I so desperately wanted. And my answer to that is no, he didn't. And this 
come completely out of biblical ignorance. God doesn't use sin to change a situation. She doesn't know God to think like this. A God who can change hearts will not use sin to grant your prayer requests. She prayed to an unknown God and she followed her heart. A heart that God himself in his word describes as deceitfully wicked. The unknown God turned out to be herself. This unknown God granted her wants. This unknown God granted her desires. This unknown God met her presumed need. Had she known a biblical God, things would have played out much different. She may have had to wait upon the Lord to change her husband's heart. She may have had to wait for years and continue in prayer for years. But the facts are that if you pray an unbiblical prayer to an unknown God, the destroyer, the devil is more than happy to help you get answers to your prayers. So Paul's sermon here is one that we should all hear. In this sermon was designed by him and by God to uncover biblical ignorance or affirm <clears throat> biblical knowledge. Paul started with verse 24, the God who made the world. Now this would contradict both what the Epicureans and the Stoics would say. The Epicureans would say that matter was eternal and it had no creator. The Stoics believed that God was part of everything, that God was in the grass and in the rocks and in the trees. And if he's in everything, that he would have had to create himself in the rocks, in the grass, and the trees. So he couldn't have created himself as part of a rock. Paul's teaching of God making the entire world can be found from Genesis to Revelation. God had made everything, including mankind. With this statement, Paul placed the God of the Bible as superior to all the other gods in Athens. And he did this from the very second that he started this sermon. Verses 24 and 25, he says, Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath in all things. Paul is saying that God, the God that he was preaching to the people of Athens, the God of the Bible, doesn't need your temples in Athens, and he doesn't need your sacrifices in them. And he left the crowd to wonder, well, why? He went on to tell them that God made from Adam all men, creating them equal. Now the Stoics would have loved this. They would have been just as gleeful as could be over this because they had a strong sense of human brotherhood. But the Greeks in the audience would have hated it because they felt that all Greeks, or all non-Greeks, were barbarians and were below them. God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. We have all been created from Adam 
for the precise times and nations that we live in now. He placed us here and now for a reason. And don't ever doubt this. Do not ever doubt it. We are here and now for a reason. And in the spot that he placed us, not one of us can live without excuse. For God is not far from any of us, as his law is written on our hearts and on our conscience. This statement, if they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist, would stand in direct opposition to the other gods. Verse 28 continues the sermon, pulling a quote. This is a quote from a known poet of the time, Epimenides, and it was from a hymn to Zeus when Paul said, For in him we live and move and exist. And then he quickly followed it up with, as even some of your own poets have said, we also are his children. This quote was from a poem by Phanomena by Stoic poet Aratus. And Paul did this in this sermon to prove a point. And his point was, if your own poets say we're children of God, then A, it's foolish to think that God can be man-made, pointing then to the statues and idols that lacked any power or might, and that were all over Athens. And he would also, in that statement, make them think of the complexity of the human body. And one can realize the genius of the Creator with our five senses, and how if we lose one of them, the others will take over. Our vascular system, how the human eye works is absolutely unbelievable, showing our bodies as much more than a creation of man. There's so many things just with a human body that can show we were created by a divine being that is much greater than all of us, much greater than his creation. This reasoning that Paul brought forth would have absolutely crushed their idolatry, their worship of man-made idols. Therefore, if there is indeed a God who created man, then all creation is subject to God and not the gods. So Paul has made that distinction now. There is a God that's created everyone through Adam. There is not gods that have created everything. Your own poets talk about God creating and how we're children of God. And this unknown God is slowly becoming known to the people of Athens. Having made his defense, Paul is going to turn his sermon over to start his charges against Athens. He said, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. They now have no excuse. The law of God is written on their hearts and consciences, and he's told them who this God is that's created all men. He was saying, you've had your time of ignorance to figure this out. You've had your time to investigate your Greek gods, your other gods. You had your time to investigate 
Epicureanism. You had your time to investigate Stoicism. It's time to judge all of these against what has been written on your heart and conscience by your Creator. And this world stands in the exact same spot. What were formerly Greek gods are now isms. Racism, feminism, ageism, classism, ableism. And the list goes on and on and on. Separating brothers and sisters, separating families, separating nations. Those who should be standing strong and tightly weaved together in unison, defending and fighting for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They all worship at their favorite altar, worshiping their favorite God, yet denying the power and love of Jesus Christ written on their conscience. Paul told them in Athens, and I will echo his words, all people need to stop worshiping at the altars of unknown gods and repent of their sin. Because he's fixed a day in which he would judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God shall hold all mankind responsible. He will hold me responsible. He will hold you responsible. The philosophers, the politicians, our sweet little grannies, the barber, the president, the garbage man, all mankind will be held responsible. And all will stand before the judgment seat and all will give an account. And there we will come face to face with the true God of the Bible. Will you know him? Will he know you? Will your righteousness be secured in this man Paul spoke of? that man being Jesus Christ. God proved that he was not a God, but the God when he sent his son as a sacrifice for sin. And then he proved it again when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Not only does God grant life, but God grants eternal life. Paul showed Athens that Jesus Christ wasn't just a good teacher, but his resurrection is at the center of God's redemptive plan. This was the evidence and this is the evidence jesus christ this is the evidence through christ that god reigns supreme over all that he that god has the authority over life not just as creator but also as judge and ultimately the power to give eternal life through jesus christ because of this sermon some believed some believe Paul. In that day, Christians were born in Athens. We've all been given proof of who God is. He's given us Jesus Christ. He's given us the Holy Bible. He's given us the Scriptures. God's Word to mankind. He's shown many of us the joy of salvation. He's answered many prayers. He's shown Himself to us in so many ways. Brothers and sisters, it's time to repent of our ignorance of the unknown God. Step away from our unknown gods and rest in the arms of Christ. We've had our time. Proof has been delivered and judgment is coming. We have our Bibles in our native languages. We have them to study. We have them to learn who God is from. We have them so we can know who we're praying to. We have him so we can know his likes and dislikes, his wants and hopes for his creation. We will have no excuses on Judgment Day. 
just as those in Athens listening to Paul had no excuse. We'll not be able to fall back on our isms or any other thing we worship to be morally righteous before the throne of God. There's still time as the heart beats to get a complete understanding of the known God and his son's redemptive work on the cross. As far as humanity is concerned, much has changed between 50 AD Athens and this world in 2023. But one thing hasn't changed, and one thing never will change, and that's God. The process is still the same as it was in Athens. Repent, turn to and know Jesus Christ, devour scripture, feed the soul with it, know God, stand before the judgment seat as a child of God, be found righteous because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Worship God forever. God is here. He always has been here, and God always will be here. The big question is not if there is a God or if God can be known. The big question is how well will you know on your last day the previously unknown God? Amen. Amen. Amen.